0: Is it better to be a blood sugar optimizer or satisficer? It's well known that eating carbohydrates causes your blood glucose to rise, and there's almost frenzied interest about how this can be unhealthy and lead to diabetes, weight gain, reactive low blood sugar, mood swings and more. Many people are mindful of their carbohydrate consumption, And the latest trend is healthy individuals using continuous glucose monitor devices to ensure near perfect blood glucose stability our bodies however possess regulatory mechanisms that keep our blood sugar within a reasonable range some argue that even erratic fluctuations within this range is normal and little conscious effort is warranted to dampen it the question i want to explore is this is it better to pursue optimal blood glucose or take a more relaxed approach and aim for near enough is good enough. While this sounds like an innocent question, don't be fooled. This is a hot topic, and diet wars have been battling it out for decades by fierce campaigners. So with emotions often running at flashpoint in this topic, it's difficult to know what to follow. Amongst all the tribalism, I promise you this. This episode is not the usual discussion about carbohydrates, if they're good or bad, or how much, or how little you should eat. Near the end, we'll explore a broader concept that has much wider implications than the diet wars and blood glucose. You'll hear a new model that is relevant to countless aspects of health and well-being and can help you take a step back from all the debate to consider a novel way to approach your body and health. To help navigate these treacherous waters, we're going to learn about guidelines from emergency plane landings, I'll give you a chance to try and decipher what a children's toy is barking at you, and we'll hear from Shakespeare and Renaissance poets and philosophers to ringside boxing commentators. We'll learn how Cointos gave someone a shotgun ride to a Nobel Prize, and we'll end with a plot twist that will put into question the concept of time itself. Let's sift through the information. Welcome! I'm Nathan Rose, and this is The Sift Podcast, a show where we sift through this sea of information in areas such as health, nutrition, medicine, and psychology in an attempt to get a better sense of what it all means. Using science and stories, I aim to synthesize the information so you are up to date and informed on topics that matter to your health and well-being. We'll learn from lessons of the past, but also be excited about innovation and therapies on the horizon. us, Sully Many are familiar with the miracle on the Hudson that occurred on January 15, 2009, but I want to briefly revisit it with a specific lens on how this may be relevant to glucose control and other areas of health. So a recap. On that memorable day, soon after US Airways Flight 1549 took off from LaGuardia Airport in New York City on the way to Charlotte Douglas International Airport in North Carolina, the aircraft struck a flock of birds. Both engines failed from the collision and the aircraft was without power and gliding at only 2,800 feet. Captain Chelsea Sully Sullenberger didn't have much time. The gliding could only take him so far. Air traffic control suggested that Sully glide the plane back to LaGuardia Airport. Sully immediately rejected that idea. Next, he was offered to land the plane at nearby Teterboro Airport. Within 20 seconds, Sully also rejected that idea. With declining two seemingly optimal or rational ideas, Sully instead relied on a simple instinctive rule that he learnt during his days as a US Air Force fighter pilot. It suggests that you place the glider in the shallowest possible rate of descent and look ahead through the windshield. If you see any place which appears to be moving downward in the field of your view, then that is somewhere you can safely reach to land. If on the other hand, the ground appears to be moving upwards, this means that the potential landing site is too far away. Using this simple rule, rather than using a calculator to determine if either airport was close enough, Sally emergency landed the plane safely in the Hudson River. Later inquiries and simulations confirmed Sally's gut feel. The other airports were likely too far away and Sally saved the lives of the travellers and also likely people on the ground. Now this concept of relying on one or a few simple rules or heuristics to make a decision rather than scrutinising every detail is a concept well known in the field of behavioural economics. Traditional economics hold the view that people make calculated, rational and wise decisions to maximise utility. We can call these people maximizers. They strive to get the very best out of every decision. They use rationality and continually search for all the information before making a purchase. I'm sure you know someone, or even yourself, when investigating whether to buy a new phone, car, house or TV, they spend countless hours analysing options, comparing features and scrutinising all the pros and cons in search for the one clear standout winner. But behavioural economics argue this can come at a price, and an alternative mindset may, in many circumstances, be better. Dubbed satisficers, these individuals have the mindset of near enough is good enough. If the product ticks a few boxes, even though the product may not be the best product or deal, satisficers are comfortable with committing and typically have less regret later on compared to maximizers. Overall, the research comparing these two types finds that maximizers are more likely to experience lower levels of happiness and self-esteem, and they also tend to be perfectionists. You can argue that Sully in the Hudson scenario was a satisficer. He quickly exercised his basic gliding requirement and made a decision. He didn't choose the best landing strip, but fortunately in this case, he chose the only right makeshift landing strip. Now, what's all this got to do with blood glucose levels and health? Well, I feel that there are a lot of high profile health and wellness influencers who are maximizers or optimizers and stress to their audience or patients that optimal is paramount. We must optimize our blood sugar, our sleep, our stress, our sex hormones, our thyroid hormones, our gut microbiome, our diet quality, and the list goes on optimising sounds like a full-time job. Whilst this may help with high performance or improved health, the a counter-argument is, perhaps getting these parameters in the ballpark or satisfying a few basic rules or heuristics could be adequate or even overall better for a person's well-being than the quest for optimization. This is something we will continue to explore in future episodes, but for now let's focus on blood sugar. To understand each side of the argument, it may help to refresh ourselves on blood glucose control. Let's start with the initial discovery of this regulatory system. In early 1922, 14-year-old Leonard Thompson lay listless in the Toronto General Hospital with the prognosis not looking favourable. He was malnourished, hair falling out, abdomen enlarged, and his breath emitted a distinct odour. He'd been in the hospital for over a month and dietary restriction and then frank fasting had not improved his situation. Leonard was suffering from juvenile or type 1 diabetes and the forecast for him in 1922 was to put it bluntly, dire. If he followed a strict low carbohydrate diet, at best he had a year, but perhaps only a few months, and during this time his poor health would limit him to laying in a spiritless state. Over the previous few years, researchers had performed extensive testing on dogs and had come to the view that diabetes had something to do with a malfunctioning pancreas. In 1921, Frederick Banting, a young Ontario orthopaedic surgeon, was given in laboratory space by John MacLeod, the head of physiology at the University of Toronto, to tease out the functioning of the pancreas. Banting was also offered a student to assist him. He had two choices and couldn't split the candidates. So he tossed a coin... And fate allocated the student Charles Best to help tackle the problem with him. Banting and Best developed a crude medicine from pancreatic extracts, which they administered to diabetic dogs, and this showed some promise. In late 1921, the group secured the services of the experienced biochemist James Collip to help them purify their pancreatic extracts, which was now dubbed MacLeod's serum. Collip did an outstanding job to purify the extract. But, to our standards today, this extract was perhaps not so pristine. The extract was described as murky, light brown liquid containing much sediment. On January 11, 1922, young Leonard was the first human to be administered McLeod's serum. Considering the purity, or lack of, unsurprisingly, the results of injecting this experimental murky brown medicine was modest and came with complications. Leonard experienced an allergic reaction to one of the impurities, and also developed an abscess at the injection site. Banting did not detect any clinical benefit in Leonard, but Leonard's extremely high blood glucose did reduce by around 25%. There was hope. Colop tinkered more with the extract. Within 12 days, Colop had further purified McLeod's serum, and on July 23, Leonard was given his second dose. This time it was a biochemical and clinical success. Leonard's blood glucose fell by 77% and the glucose in his urine plummeted by 88%. Moreover, Banting described that Leonard looked brighter, felt better and became more active. He made a full recovery and with regular injections led a normal life. Banting and McLeod performed more treatment on six diabetic children and they achieved the same outstanding response. Within two years, Banting and McLeod were awarded the Nobel Prize in Medicine. To this day, it's still the fastest Nobel Prize awarded following the discovery of a medical breakthrough. And through the luck of a coin toss, Best got to ride shotgun the entire way. The medicine is no longer known as McLeod serum. It goes by the name of the active ingredient had identified, insulin. The discovery of insulin and the rapid deployment is one of medicine's greatest achievements as it has saved countless lives around the world. Evolutionary Housekeeping Banting's pioneering work not only resulted in developing life-saving medicine, but also paved the way to our understanding of how blood glucose is controlled. Banting and his team discovered the hormone insulin, which is secreted from the pancreas when it detects rising levels of blood glucose. It's one side of the coin of our automatic regulatory mechanism to control blood glucose. Think of it like a central heating and cooling unit in our house. A climate control system is programmed to have a set point or a range of temperatures that the occupant desires. The system is constantly monitoring the indoor temperature, and if the temperature climbs above the upper threshold, the air conditioning kicks in to bring the temperature back down to the desired zone. Likewise, if the indoor temperature becomes too cold, the lower limit is breached and the heater fires up. Essentially, there's mechanisms in place to keep the temperature in a specific desirable range. Our bodies also contain countless regulatory systems like the climate control in homes. These are called homeostatic mechanisms, which are biological systems operating to maintain stability. Blood pressure, body temperature, pH, hydration are a few examples. Homeostatic mechanisms also exist to maintain blood glucose levels in a healthy range. Insulin is the hormone that initiates a cascade of events to promote cells to take up glucose from the blood and utilize this glucose for energy production or the storage of fat, keeping it for a rainy day. In contrast, if blood glucose gets too low, this is a sign our system needs more available fuel and several hormones can be released to help liberate glucose out of storage and into the blood. Our liver stores an appreciable amount of glucose and hormones such as glucagon, which is released from the pancreas, cortisol and adrenaline, which are released from our adrenal glands, and growth hormone, which is released from our pituitary gland, they can all induce the release of glucose out of storage and into our blood. It is suggested that throughout evolution, the need to tap into glucose storage for quick use was of vital importance during commonly occurring life-threatening situations. Think of quickly needing energy to flee from a saber-toothed tiger. You need to tap into stored energy to immediately deliver that glucose to your leg muscles to enable you to run faster than your slowest colleague. You don't need to be first, just not last. Or deliver that glucose to your brain so it can help you think of another solution, such as finding a tree to scale. Considering mistakes at risk, or the risk of you being a steak, it's best to have redundancy in our ability to access glucose. That's why we have numerous hormones to help liberate glucose. Glucagon, cortisol, adrenaline, and growth hormone can all raise blood glucose, and each one has advantages or specificity in increasing blood glucose over others depending on the context. But in contrast, there wasn't any short-term or life-saving benefit in rapidly lowering elevated blood glucose in our days on the African savanna, so it's thought that perhaps we didn't need several redundant mechanisms to ensure we can quickly lower our blood glucose. One will do, and that one mechanism is via insulin. Evolution has mostly shaped our physiology to ensure we survive short-term threats such as starvation and dehydration. It never had the luxury to develop mechanisms to combat problems that develop from years and, and even decades of more subtle challenges, say eating a little bit too much sugar each day. Evolution couldn't invest in shares portfolio when it only had enough resources to pay the rent and keep the lights on. Through evolution, it was a good trade-off to develop several mechanisms to increase blood glucose, but only one to invest in lowering blood glucose, namely insulin. But today, with a different environment, there's less of a threat to our immediate survival and our sole blood glucose lowering mechanism has become vulnerable to dysfunction. we are regularly witnessing the effects of a broken homeostatic mechanism, that is, insulin not being present or unable to lower blood glucose. Now, in the case of Leonard, he had type 1 diabetes, where there is damage to the beta cells of the pancreas, rendering it unable now to synthesize insulin. As he consumed carbohydrates, his blood glucose rose, but the pancreas was unable to manufacture the required insulin to help funnel the glucose out of the blood and into the tissues. As the blood glucose elevated above the desired physiological range, not only was there excess glucose in the blood, but not enough glucose in the metabolically active tissues. His cells were starving because of transport issues. There was a glucose pileup in the blood causing some symptoms, and glucose deficiency in the tissues creating other symptoms. Banting's pioneering work on supplying exogenous insulin quickly helped restore homeostasis to Leonard's deranged blood glucose and his symptoms rapidly abated. Now as you know, nowadays type 2 diabetes and its precursor pre-diabetes are widely prevalent and on the rise in developing nations. Type 2 diabetes is strongly linked to obesity and generally, as a person's weight increases above the healthy range, their blood glucose and insulin levels elevate beyond their ideal ranges. Knock a little louder, sugar! In the pre-diabetic phase, unlike type 1 diabetes, The pancreas is still making adequate and often excessive amounts of insulin, but the insulin is resistant. That is, the target cells of the hormone aren't responding. It's like insulin is knocking on the front door of a house, but no one is answering to open the door and let the glucose in. So insulin knocks louder in an attempt to get a response. Think of the old B-52s song, Love Shack. Bang, bang, bang on the door, baby. I can't hear you. You know the song. Now, hopefully it's stuck in your head. While this is happening, glucose is piling up in the street, eager to get inside the house. With this scenario of high blood glucose and high insulin levels, if the insulin resistance is not managed, the patient can go on to develop type 2 diabetes. In this scenario, there is damage to the beta cells of the pancreas and subsequently a loss of insulin secretion. The type 2 diabetic patient has not only inadequate insulin, what they do have isn't working on the target cells. They require intensive management to lower blood glucose and improve insulin sensitivity. Evolutionary mismatch Those who subscribe to evolutionary biology suggest insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes are due to an evolutionary mismatch. We have evolved in food scarcity and now faced with abundant calories, especially carbohydrates and sugars. Our bodies weren't shaped to deal with this surplus, and disease manifests itself in the form of diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and even conditions like cancer and dementia. The solution from proponents, therefore, is to return to a more ancestral type of diet. This typically includes a square focus on reducing carbohydrates and sugar intake, often calls for a dramatic or total reduction. And this is where it gets heated, and downright nasty. The Dive Wars There is a quote attributed to mark twain that goes something along the lines of never discuss politics or religion in polite company i often think today that a third topic could be added to this list diets the polarization that occurs from the diet wars is equal to the partisanship of politics or even the evangelism of some religions particularly on social media the tribalism and passion around diet approaches is contested with religiosity with people trading blows and citations and mechanisms. For the average person, perhaps with less skin in the game, it's difficult to know what is reasonable advice and it can be confusing with the seemingly completely contradictory information. Much of the polarisation in the diet wars revolves around the issue of whether insulin and glucose are causal in chronic disease and how best to manage them. Let's go to the big ticket duel to see this play out. To do this, I'll sneak past the carnivores battling it out with the vegans in the bleachers. Also as they're peering down at their watches checking if their idolized protocol now allows them it's time to eat, I'll slip past the fastest and the time-restricted eating champions. I'll sit down with popcorn in hand in the front row seats to watch the two heavyweight champions engage in the diet wars longest and most bloody rivalry.
1: Welcome to the main event, I'm your host, Will Not Diet, coming to you from ringside to call this match. What a crowd we have in the house tonight. The athletes have entered the ring. Let's hear from our announcer, Eat a Load of Carbs, to introduce our competitors.
0: In the red corner, making the weight cut by not consuming a carbohydrate since 1982
1: is the carbohydrate insulin model. The carbohydrate insulin model has passionate supporters flying the flag, but is considered the underdog, which itself further attracts followers, those who are skeptical of nutrition science. The model's ringside manager is Gary Taubes, who is akin to the fame and notoriety Mike Tyson's manager Don had in the 90s. Gary is passionate, doggered, and has put all his chips on the model. A tough fighter in his own right, He never takes a backward step when the model suffers a telling blow.
0: The carbohydrate insulin model suggests that obesity, insulin resistance, diabetes, and many common maladies are caused by excess consumption of carbohydrates. Consuming carbohydrates, essentially regardless of the type, but in a dose-dependent manner stimulates insulin secretion, which in their mind promotes both fat storage and essentially wears out insulin signaling, leading to insulin resistance. To the carbohydrate-insulin model crowd, they have a hammer and everything in the world is a nail. The hammer is a low-carbohydrate diet. All and sundry should limit carbohydrates to levels that are rather difficult for many to sustain. A strict and severe carbohydrate reduction will result in reduced blood glucose and insulin, which in their mind is the best way, and sometimes the only way, to manage and even reverse type 2 diabetes, obesity, some cancers, heart disease, and the list goes on. In the blue corner, holding a calculator and spreadsheet
1: and meticulously budgeting its caloric intake is the energy balance model. The energy balance model is nowhere near as edgy and fashionable as the carbohydrate insulin model. This conservative looking athlete has its followers, albeit far less enthusiastic than the opponent's bloodthirsty fans. Although there is probably no one figurehead in the blue corner, Managing the energy balance model, a well known public advocate is Lane Norton. With a PhD in nutrition science and a large online presence, Lane tirelessly engages with all dietary zealots, not only low carbers, but does seem to trade blows with this crowd the most. Lane doesn't suffer fools, and his words are as strong as his bench press, which is saying a lot as he is a world champion powerlifter. Lane retorts, "Any low carb demonstrating zeal to eat with a battery of evidence-based nutrition information. He's not opposed to low carb, but by his interpretation of the data, feels the bulk of low carbohydrate benefits are due to a caloric reduction, not a carbohydrate per se."
0: The energy balance model is simple and perhaps misunderstood. This model suggests the primary cause of obesity is excess energy intake regardless if the energy is from fat, carbohydrates, protein, or even alcohol. Weight gain, the energy balance model suggests, occurs when people eat more calories than they burn. Excess calories increase fat gain, and when excess fat deposits specifically in the pancreas and liver, this causes insulin resistance. The treatment for insulin resistance is primarily weight loss via inducing a caloric deficit, not specifically strictly avoiding carbohydrates. As the model suggests an overweight person should consume less energy, some mistakenly believe that the patient must count calories. They can, but it's not necessary. There has been plenty of research on both models and more than a handful of studies comparing models head-to-head. Each team often cites evidence to support their views. Sometimes they ignore evidence that counters their views. About 10 years ago, in the early rounds of this stoush, the low-carb has landed some reasonable punches, with the results of some clinical trials favoring low-carbohydrate diets over low-fat, low-energy diets. In addition, with the simple narrative of avoid carbohydrates to prevent problematic insulin and glucose spikes, coupled with the view that mainstream nutrition suggests low-fat dieting doesn't work because a population continues to become more overweight, the low-carbohydrate diet has gained celebrity-like popularity. Indeed, many people have and do lose weight and improve their health On low carbohydrate diets. Over the course of the past 10 years, however, there have been numerous studies supporting the energy balance model and importantly several of these trials were head-to-head clinical trials comparing the carbohydrate insulin model to the energy balance model for weight loss and improvements in blood glucose parameters. In these trials, essentially, it's a break-even tie. Both work as well or as poorly as one another. Does this mean that both models are correct? Well, not really. Overall, the bulk of the evidence suggests it's a reduction in energy, rather than carbohydrates, that mediates the majority of these benefits. Restricting carbohydrates inadvertently restricts energy. If the low-carbohydrate diet doesn't induce an energy deficit, say by eating excessive amounts of fat, then you don't see any or much improvement in weight or metabolic health. But, don't think this will be the final word. Despite the evidence favouring energy balance model, I suspect both parties will continue to lock horns and slug it out rarely convincing people on the other camp to switch teams. I will sit back and eat the popcorn on the sidelines, wondering about the calorie or carbohydrate content of the popcorn. If we take the position that low-carbohydrate advocates are an extreme version of optimization, then the evidence suggests no, optimization isn't superior. But there are many more who are attempting to optimise blood glucose without subscribing to a low-carbohydrate diet. Now, let's sift through this. The Highs and Lows of the Glycemic Index The carbohydrate-insulin model essentially has a zero-tolerance approach to insulin and carbohydrates. In one respect, the energy-balance model has a laissez-faire or hands-off management style with blood glucose and insulin, suggesting that pathological elevations in both are mostly a consequence of excessive weight gain. Sitting somewhere between these two camps exists a lot of research and interest in managing the daily variations in our blood glucose, particularly after meals. This is where we can start exploring optimizing versus satisfying, especially beyond weight management. In 1981, Dr. David Jenkins and his colleagues at the University of Toronto published the results of a study where they looked at changes in blood glucose over a two-hour period when subjects consumed different foods. They found the largest rise in blood glucose was from vegetables, followed by breakfast cereal, then modest elevations from cereals and biscuits, then fruit, and then only a small rise from dairy products and legumes. From this, Jenkins created the glycemic index, which is an arbitrary numerical ranking system that assigns a value to carbohydrate-containing foods based on how quickly they raise blood glucose levels after a meal. It compares foods to a standard reference, typically glucose or white bread, which has a GI of 100. From this, foods were classified in three categories based on their glycemic index. Low, 55 or less, these foods were suggested to have a relatively slow and steady effect on blood glucose and were often considered healthier choices. Medium, 56 to 69, foods in this range had a moderate impact on blood glucose and could be enjoyed occasionally. High GI, 70 or more, these foods cause a rapid spike in blood glucose levels and were often best consumed sparingly. These categorizations of food became popular and has been subjected to extensive research. The glycemic index was also expanded upon to consider not only the type of food consumed, but also how much you could eat a little of high GI food or a lot of medium GI food and get similar elevations in blood glucose. With this in mind, the glycemic load was added to the discussion and often the topic is discussed as GI GL, glycemic index, glycemic load. In any case, the general view became focused on what's called the postprandial period and how high and how sustained is your blood glucose after a meal. Advocates suggest that excessive and prolonged glucose after meals is a problem. This extra glucose and subsequently insulin can drive things like inflammation, mood changes, it can fuel tumor growth and create atherosclerosis and more. Additionally, there's a meme along the lines that the bigger they are, the harder they fall. It's common to hear people talk about how blood glucose spikes and the subsequent crashes. Proponents believe that a rapid glucose rise and a high peak are difficult for our homeostatic mechanisms to manage, and the response is often too heavy-handed. The accompanying high amounts of insulin can drive glucose below our set point. In other words, in this meme, high-geo foods cause rebound hypoglycemia, shakes, fatigue, hunger, irritability, etc., The proponents of the glycemic index paint a picture that large variability in blood glucose causes damage not only by its stunning heights, but also by its problematic nadir. Sounds grim and convincing. It's worth emphasizing these dizzy elevations and precipitous dissensions of blood glucose after meals are still within the limits of a healthy range. These peaks and troughs may occasionally flirt with, or briefly transgress, the boundaries of our healthy range. but. These are rare moments and short-lived, and are not the same as a type 2 diabetic who has constantly high blood glucose and insulin. However, promoters of the glycemic index feel that eating high glycemic foods creates too many sustained peaks, a concept called area under the curve, and all this glucose and insulin floating about stimulates weight gain, inflammation, oxidative stress, and more. Likewise, it is thought that the overly erratic blood glucose variability puts a strain on our homeostatic mechanisms, and this can result in the pancreas wearing out, eventually leading to type 2 diabetes. So this all comes back to my central question. Is it better to optimise our blood sugar and have less fluctuation, even though the variation is in the normal physiological range? By eating a low GI diet, it's predicted that after a meal, you'll have a slow and stunted rise in blood glucose and insulin, and a gradual and accurate return back to baseline. This would be considered optimal, and health benefits would be experienced. In contrast, a satisficer approach would be to essentially ignore the glycemic index. Eat a sensible diet to keep your weight stable or in a eucaloric state or a calorie balanced state. You may have normal variation in blood glucose, but that does not have any adverse effect as long as you're not putting on weight and you're fasting blood glucose and, say, hemoglobin A1c, which is a marker of long-term glucose control, are all in the normal range or the healthy range. Now, we were support for choice in regards to research on high versus low GI diets for health outcomes, and I can utilize the most recent meta-analysis to give a broad summary. To recap, a meta-analysis is analysis of all the relevant studies on a particular intervention, often for a specific condition. In June of this year, a comprehensive meta-analysis on the effect of low GI diets on weight and metabolic health was published by what's considered the Rolls-Royce Organization of Meta-Analyses, the Cochrane Review. This 120-page analysis compared low-GI diets versus high-GI diets on body weight and numerous metabolic health parameters. The review looked at 10 studies comprising 1,210 individuals. Impressive numbers for nutrition research. And the results found... Overall, there was no difference between high and low-GI diets for weight loss, fasting blood glucose hemoglobin A1c, insulin, cholesterol, blood pressure, and even quality of life. The same results appeared when low GI diets were compared to other forms of diet, such as a ketogenic diet or low-fat diets. A sub-analysis found that reductions in hemoglobin A1c and fasting glucose from any of the studied diets was linked only to weight loss. That is, it's likely that weight loss drove the improvements in fasting blood glucose. Essentially, another punch landed for the energy balance model. There was also a meta-analysis in 2018 looking at low GI diets and its effects on inflammatory markers. Recall that some suggest high postprandial glucose and insulin can trigger inflammation, which underlies chronic disease. But again, the meta-analysis found low GI diets were not linked to lower amounts of serum levels of inflammatory cytokines, such as high-sensitive C-reactive protein, leptin, interleukin-6, and tumor necrosis factor alpha. Taking the results personally, Now, despite the growing evidence in the literature that attempting to optimize blood glucose with manipulating the amount or type of carbohydrate is seemingly futile, that has not stopped a growing movement of influential people doubling down on the idea. And they are taking it personally. By this I mean they argue that how a population responds to carbohydrates can be different and sometimes polar opposite to how individuals respond to the same dose and type of carbohydrates. And only by measuring the individual's response and tailoring the diet in a bespoke manner can you achieve optimal results. This is known as personalized medicine or precision medicine, and this is boss level optimizing, or some may call it biohacking. A trend has taken off where health optimizers or biohackers wear a continuous glucose monitor to observe their glucose and tweak their diet to the nth degree based off the results. Continuous glucose monitors were developed for type 1 diabetics to help better manage their blood glucose. It consists of a small patch embedded with a needle, which is a sensor and is placed in the skin, such as the upper arm. The monitor measures the amount of glucose in what's called the interstitial space, and it's a good proxy for blood glucose levels. It serves a valuable role for type 1 diabetics, and is a wonderful innovation for this population. In recent years, biohackers who often have perfectly healthy levels of blood glucose have been utilising continuous glucose monitors to theoretically fine tune their health. In their defence, there is some scientific rationale to suggest that people respond differently to meals with respect to their blood glucose. Several recent studies using continuous glucose monitors, or CGMs, have found results that call into question the simplified and generic advice that Jenkins first introduced to the world in 1981. Researchers in both Israel and the United Kingdom have found when providing test subjects with identical foods, there can be a large variation in glucose response between people. Personalized medicine therefore prescribes specific foods for each individual to ensure their blood glucose is optimized. So, you could argue that perhaps the poor results seen in clinical trials, where generic low GI diets were given, were in fact not low in the glycemic index for some individuals. Likewise, someone assigned to a high GI diet in these clinical trials may in fact have had an attenuated postprandial glucose response and actually been inadvertently prescribed a low GI diet. The carbohydrate insulin model is picking itself off the canvas after everyone assumed it sustained a devastating knockout blow. Rocky Balboa would be inspired. Complex Carbohydrates or Complicated Carbohydrates Now, there is some emerging evidence that argues that using CGMs has advantages, but it's complicated Firstly, in June 2023, in a paper titled Imprecision Nutrition, researchers found that administering the same meal to the same individual over separate occasions showed variations in their response. That is, the same food affected the person's blood glucose at different days. Also, the study looked at the response using different commercially available devices and found variation in the same meal. This put into question the accuracy and reliability of using this method. Or could it suggest that factors other than food can affect blood glucose? Now, another argument levelled against the idea of healthy people using CGMs is that they mostly show that these people do in fact have healthy blood glucose levels. As such, there is no point constantly monitoring unremarkable blood glucose. For reference, the American Diabetes Association state that the normal bandwidth of blood glucose variation is 3.9 to 7.8 millimoles per litre. The goal for diabetics is to have their blood glucose within this range over 70% of the time. Study in 2019 provided CGMs to healthy participants to wear for 10 days. The data showed that healthy people were in the normal range 96% of the time. That is over a 24 hour period, this equated to 30 minutes of the time that the blood glucose was over 7.8 millimoles per litre and for 15 minutes of the day it was below 3.9 millimoles per litre. So back to our central question. Now some influential well-known optimizers say that even this 30 minutes a day outside the range is problematic and justifies micromanaging your diet. Whereas a satisficer, if they had otherwise healthy blood glucose, look at a 30 minute indiscretion and say, meh, whatever, just a normal elevation and nothing to worry about. So which camp do you subscribe to? Now one last point on personalized diets and CGMs before things get really weird. If we turn our attention to people with pre-diabetes and type 2 diabetes, there are a couple studies investigating the use of constant glucose monitors and precision nutrition. Aran Segal and his team at the Wiseman Institute in Israel have been doing fascinating work on personalized medicine. And This has recently culminated in them publishing several clinical trials comparing their personalized diet protocol versus various standard of care diets for the management of pre-diabetes. Briefly, their personalized diet protocol consists of gathering genetic data, microbiome analysis, CGM responses, body composition and other biomarkers which are fed into a machine learning algorithm to develop a list of good and bad foods for each individual. For example, For some, sushi is good for their blood glucose and ice cream is bad, for others it's the opposite, ice cream is on the menu and sushi is a no-no. Three trials have been published to date, one trial found that their personalized diet was superior for glycemic control compared to the Mediterranean diet. However, two more recent trials found no beneficial effects on weight loss or glycemic control compared to a low-fat diet. So the jury is still out but so far not a convincing win for personalized diets. Again, this is a topic we'll explore in more detail in the future. Okay, to recap, there have been decades of clinical trials published on manipulating the diet to affect postprandial glucose. And over this period there's been a growing interest in the public on the desire to optimize postprandial glucose. More recently, The efforts to finally regulate postprandial glucose have entered into the realms of personalized medicine. But looking at the body of research, the results have not been an emphatic win for camp optimizers. The optimizers have become increasingly more and more fastidious on the amount and type of carbohydrates they ingest, going from the general recommendations to the individual. Researchers have tried to leverage the cracking of the DNA code, and more recently the gut microbiome landscape, in an attempt to construct a strategy to optimise an individual's postprandial response, but to date, this hasn't consistently shown benefit. Now, Putting aside for a moment the idea that the quest for micromanaging blood glucose in a healthy individual is possibly meaningless, what if researchers and biohackers are looking at regulating blood glucose from the wrong perspective? What if our physiology is more than a closed loop? Perhaps we don't only possess an automatic regulating system like a climate control system in our house. No man is an island or an air conditioner. During the late Renaissance period, English poet John Donne wrote a prose titled No Man is an Island, arguing people do not thrive in isolation and need to be connected to one another. In this vein, there is an argument that when it comes to regulating our body functions, like blood glucose, no man is an air conditioner. Our blood glucose regulation isn't just an autonomous machine operating in isolation where one passively throws a dose of carbohydrates into the system and lets the system just work it out. They are still operating under Descartes' dualism. Let me explain. At the same time John Donne was penning his prose, Frenchman Rene Descartes had ascended his views and his stature to become regarded as the father of modern philosophy and science. Among his many achievements, Descartes proposed the concept of mind-body dualism, which is also known as Cartesian dualism. This philosophical concept posits that the mind and body are distinct and separate entities, with the mind being non-material and the body being a physical, material substance. This view suggested that mental and physical phenomena operate independently and do not interact in a causal way, a perspective often summarized by Descartes' famous statement, I think, therefore I am. Cartesian dualism had a significant influence on Western philosophical and scientific thought. It contributed to the development of the scientific method, with Descartes advocating for a clear separation between the study of the mind, psychology, and the study of the body, the natural sciences. This separation allowed for advances in both fields, as it promoted rigorous, objective inquiry into the physical world, whilst also emphasising the importance of introspection and subjective experiences. However, as modern medicine progressed, the idea of a strict separation between mind and body faced challenges. Modern medicine did evolve to adopt a more integrated perspective known as the biopsychosocial model, which considers the interactions and interdependence of biology, psychology and social factors of health and illness. But in some areas of medicine, such as this topic of today's podcast episode, there is still a strong undercurrent of Cartesian dualism, and only a token acknowledgement of the biopsychosocial model. As we have explored so far, the bulk of the research has been on carbohydrates, or a little more broadly, food, on blood glucose control. That's understandable, but limited. Granted, contemporary healthcare practitioners often recognize that exercise and sleep can impact blood glucose. There is also a common acknowledgement that the vague term stress is bad and can impact our homeostatic networks. But the role of the mind and the brain is typically limited to stress and one must manage or avoid stress. But emerging research suggests that this is still a reductionist, Cartesian and limited view. The mind is connected to the body in a bizarre and meaningful ways. Now, time for Dorothy and us to leave Kansas and leave the Cartesian dualism behind. (laughs) Experiment 1. What's the time, Mr. Wolf? In this study, eligible participants in the Harvard area responded to an ad asking for volunteers to help investigate cognitive function among people who had type 2 diabetes. The experiment they undertook took was seemingly quite basic. The participants arrived in the morning after an overnight fast. Empty-pocketed and empty-handed, they entered a sparse room, table, chair, clock on the wall, TV monitor and a video game console, was all that populated the room. The participants were instructed to play the video game console. They were asked to monitor the clock every 15 minutes, notify the assistant, and the assistant would change to a new video game. A participant played video games for either 45 minutes, 90 minutes, or 180 minutes, changing games every 15 minutes, and had their blood glucose measured at the start and at the end of their respective sessions. Experiment two, how sweet it is, and reads. Similar to Experiment 1, an ad in the Harvard area read, We are interested in the effects of specially designed beverages on the body's reaction and cognitive function among people with type 2 diabetes. Again, eligible participants gathered in the morning after an overnight fast. They were handed a flavoured drink and asked to look at the packaging and consume the drink. The subjects were allocated to receive one of the two forms of a drink, either 0 grams of sugar or a beverage containing 30 grams of sugar. The participants were asked how sweet the drink tasted, and every 20 minutes for the next hour, they had their blood glucose measured and gave a rating of how satisfied they were with the drink. The results. Experiment 1. Unsurprisingly, those who had played the video game for three hours saw the largest reductions in blood glucose by the time they had finished their session. The smallest reduction in blood glucose was those who only played the game for 45 minutes. All straightforward as we expect. The longer you engage in activity, the more glucose will drain from your blood into your metabolically active organs. Experiment 2. Also unsurprisingly, those who consumed the high-carbohydrate drink rated the drink more sweeter, they were more satisfied with the drink, and their blood glucose levels rose over the hour more than those who drank the zero-carbohydrate drink. Their blood glucose was almost twice as high as zero-carbohydrate drinkers. Again, all as you expect, a dose-dependent rise in blood glucose from the carbohydrates. I perceive, therefore I am. The Plot Twist The researchers were messing with the minds of the participants, not in a nefarious way, but they were challenging the volunteers' perceptions and their subsequent physiological responses. In Experiment 1, the researchers adjusted the speed the clocks operated at. One clock progressed at half the normal speed, one clock operated at the normal speed, and the third clock ticked away at twice the speed. The 45 minute group actually played video games for 90 minutes, yet their blood glucose behaved as if only 45 minutes had passed. Likewise the 180 minute group also only played the video games for 90 minutes, but their regulatory system operated as if 3 hours had passed. And as you have probably guessed by now for experiment 2, both groups drank the same amount of sugar. The drinks were neither 0 or 30 grams of sugar, but both contained 15 grams of sugar. The researchers used misleading and false nutritional panels on the labels. Those who presumed they ingested 30 grams of sugar rated the as sweeter and their bodies also believed that by increasing the blood glucose accordingly, much higher than the zero sugar drinkers. WTF, what the fructose? A needle in a brain stack. Before I explain all this weirdness, how about you try it for yourself? Now I'm going to play some audio clips and tell me what you hear. Green Needle needle. Brainstorm Did you first hear Green Needle and the second time hear Brainstorm? Well, did you know I played the same audio file both times? The green needle brainstorm fiasco went viral a few years ago as an online video showed a man activating some small electronic toy that thunders out the ominous pre-recorded phrase. People found they either heard green needle or brainstorm and debate erupted. Now for our purposes, I performed the concept of priming where I set the expectations and then luckily your brain accommodated by eliminating what's known as prediction error and you heard a repeat of the word I primed you with. Now this phenomenon goes beyond viral internet videos and is evidence of this new model in neuroscience of predictive processing and aleostasis. As predictive as my puns. Predictive processing, also known as predictive coding, is a framework that suggests the brain operates by constantly generating predictions about the world and then comparing these predictions with incoming sensory information. This framework posits that the brain's primary function is to minimise prediction errors, which arise when there's a mismatch between what the brain expects and what it perceives. The predictive coding model is in contrast to the traditional or classic view, which is that our senses are passive and reactive. In the classic model, we accurately observe a stimulus, and the brain makes a mental model of that observation. This is flipped around in predictive processing. You first have an existing or prior mental model, then your senses feed your brain information on the current observation, the brain prefers not to have a mismatch or prediction error from the pre-existing mental model to the observation. I earlier set the mental model of saying green needle first, then you heard a sound and your brain preferred to settle with the existing model of green needle, rather than brainstorm. This was reversed when I primed you with the word brainstorm. Another good example of predicting processing is the hollow face illusion. Look it up on the internet. The hollow face illusion occurs when you view a sculpture of a face but the face is inverted, like looking at the inside of a plastic mask. But when the sculpture is rotated side to side, at a certain point the rotation of the sculpture appears to flip out from the inverted or concave face to a normal, convex shape. Our brains are used to seeing faces in a convex shape, so the brain reconstructs the image to make it appear like a normal face. repredict a normal face so we see a normal face. Also. The white and gold or the black and blue dress controversy that blew up the internet a few years ago is also based on predictive coding. Again you can quickly google this dress. A study on the dress by neuroscientist Pascal Walsh found that a person described the color depending on what they predicted the background lighting to be. Walsh discovered that if the observer assumed the dress was in natural light the brain had a mental model of natural light and therefore predicts or expects the dress to be white or gold. On the other hand If people presume the dress was lit by artificial light, their existing mental model tells them that the dress should appear black and blue. And that's what they see, black and blue. Now, what's all this got to do with blood glucose control? Well, in essence, predictive processing allows our brain to prepare the body for anticipated events, reducing uncertainty and readying our response to the environment. This framework is considered a fundamental aspect of brain function, helping us adapt and navigate the world effectively. You had me at allo. Rather than the simple and detached model of homeostasis that I mentioned earlier, using predictive processing, an updated version of how we regulate our physiology has been put forward. This is known as allostasis. Homeostasis is a reactive model. Wait for a person to ingest carbohydrates and then balance the blood glucose once the glucose is in the blood Instead, allostasis starts with the prediction and then incorporates what it senses both from the external senses such as the clock on the wall or what the body detects within itself such as hormone levels and then it makes adjustments. In the deliberately misleading experiments on diabetics, the diabetics predicted based on the mental model that was influenced by the misleading clocks and nutritional panels that the volunteers' unconscious brains performed what's called anticipatory budgeting. For example, in the nutritional panel study, the subconscious brain predicted that the body consumed 30 grams of sugar, and with that the unconscious assumptions instructed peripheral organs to operate as if it had ingested 30 grams of sugar. Likewise, when the clocks were unknownly running twice as fast, the prediction machine of the volunteers' brain instructed its budgeting department to expect to burn 180 minutes worth of glucose. So even though only 90 minutes had passed, because the brain was provided with information that it was at 180 minutes, the body budgeted and adapted to the perceived time, not the real time. Now, This is an important concept we will return to in future episodes because it has huge implications and how we can potentially treat conditions such as chronic pain, irritable bowel syndrome, fatigue, stress, weight management, aging, and even neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease. But focusing back on blood glucose regulation for the moment, maybe for the optimizers, the holy grail may not be found in your physiology, such as the genes, or the microbes, or your sleep quality, or exercise type, or some yet-to-be-discovered metabolite. But instead, the way you perceive your nutrition and what sort of mental models you build could be more of a factor in achieving blood glucose control. Discard Descartes and embrace what's been dubbed Mind-Body-Unity. Finally, on predictive processing and allostasis, this raises questions on how many people's current mental models of carbohydrates and insulin have on their blood glucose. As we've seen in the diet wars, many still fear carbohydrates and the subsequent insulin secretion. Could it be the expectation effect of fear of the carbohydrates that may be a self-fulfilling prophecy time, whether it runs true or not, will tell. I suspect yes that it does. The current carbophobia makes me think of Shakespeare's Hamlet who said: "There is nothing either good or bad but thinking makes it so. Okay, let's wrap up. My central question: Is it better to be a blood glucose optimizer or satisficer? If you are healthy, I think being an optimistic satisfier is preferred. By this, I mean a satisficer, who has a positive view or healthy mental models of their blood glucose. I believe that if you have a healthy fasting blood glucose, perhaps you've had your hemoglobin A1c measured and that's healthy, and your weight stable, then you should have confidence that eating a diet with whatever amount or type of carbohydrates you prefer will keep your blood glucose in a normal range. It may fluctuate, but that's normal, and even brief transient peaks and troughs are uneventful. Now this approach reminds me of a quote by the American author John A. Sheed who once said a ship in the harbor is safe but it's not what ships are built for. Don't be afraid to let your blood glucose out of the safe harbor. Your body will handle it fine. On top of this perhaps your perspective on your diet and your physiology has even a greater impact. Perhaps if you build the mental model that food you consume will nourish you rather than harm you that will create the expectation effect and your body will budget and distribute your food in a healthy and helpful manner. Then, not only should you take your blood glucose out on the open water, but now you know that you are the captain of the ship and those waves may be as big or as small as you think them to be. Thanks for listening. I look forward to speaking to you next time. If you've been listening to the SIFT podcast, don't forget to like and subscribe on your favourite podcasting platform. Leaving a review really helps us out. The information on this podcast is for educational purposes only and is not intended or implied to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Always seek the advice of your qualified healthcare provider before starting any new treatment or discontinuing an existing treatment.